Please take that Bible that you should all have now and turn to Acts chapter 9. The book of Acts in the New Testament, chapter 9. If you are using a Bible from this room, uh, you can find Acts chapter 9 on page 785. Page 785. And before we begin with the notes, I want you to ask yourself this question. So everybody in here should should be answering this question for yourself. Who do I know that I think... Ask this for yourself, don't ask this about me. Who do I know that I think would be the least likely person that I could possibly think of to become a Christian. The least likely person that I could humanly think of, someone who is as, as far from God as, as you could imagine, and you think to yourself, it would be outrageous if that person came to Christ. All right, think think about who that person might be for you. Somebody that you know. So so we probably all think of celebrities. But I don't want to think of I don't want to think of celebrities. I want to think of in your life personally that you know. So maybe a friend, maybe a neighbor, maybe a family member, either close relative or distant relative. Maybe it's an acquaintance, so somebody you have uh, like more of a distant relationship with, you know about this person, they're in your school, they're in your family, whether you spent much time with them or not. Uh, maybe there's more than one. Maybe it's a group of people. So maybe you hang out with a certain uh, crowd of people semi-regularly, and you think if any, if any of those people in that group came to Christ, that would be just, again, um, outlandish to, to think of, humanly speaking. So maybe you know of them that they are just entirely opposed to faith of any kind. They're not religious at all. They don't believe in any sort of God, or they don't at least worship any sort of God. Or maybe they're a part of what we would think of as a false religion. So they, they serve a God, but not the God of the Bible. Maybe it's someone who would formerly have called themselves a believer but they have turned away from faith in Christ for whatever reason. And so you think about this person, and you think that maybe they seem, again, humanly speaking, so far from God that it wouldn't even seem worth it to have a conversation with them about Christ. You're like, why would I even bring it up around them? It won't do any good. And what I want us to do here at the beginning is to pray for those names. Pray for those people who came into your mind. Because, as we're going to see tonight, God saves people that we would think of who are the most unlikely people to be saved. And we're going to pray because it's God who saves them. We don't save anyone. It's not up to us. We, we can't even save ourselves. So, think about a name or multiple names 
We're going to take just a minute, and we're going to do this silently. So I want you to pray silently. We'll, we'll keep it quiet in here just for about a minute, and then I'll pray out loud, and then we'll get some comfort, I think, from Acts 9. So let's pray silently. Oh God, I ask that you will show your power and your willingness to save people who in our minds may have no chance at this point in their lives of coming to you. So we pray that you will change the course of the lives of people who are on our hearts and minds even now, that you would set them on a path towards yourself, that even though they may not ever seek you, that you would seek them, and that you would bring them to yourself, draw them to yourself, show them your love for them. Lord, you have done this for us. You have caused us, who would have no other way of knowing you, to be your children. Lord, it is outrageous that you would save any of us. And we pray that you would extend your salvation through us to others. And that you would cause those people not only to come to know you, but that they would be an instrument of sharing your good news with other people that we don't even know. And we pray that you'll do this in a way that only you can get the glory. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, the main point for tonight is that God has revealed Himself to us uh, in the exact way that He wants us to know Him. Um, It's not enough to just believe in God generically. We must believe in God the way that He has shown Himself to us. And the way that God has shown Himself most clearly to us is by coming as a human to the earth in the person of His Son, Jesus. And the reason God has sent Jesus into the world is to save the world, to save people from all over the world. So, we're here in Acts chapter 9. We've been in Acts now for a few weeks. We have seen that Jesus at one time was on the earth, 
but that he left the earth and went back into heaven. Uh, but that he didn't leave us alone. He sent his spirit to his followers who were there in Jerusalem. And through the followers of Jesus who had the Holy Spirit, we saw that the gospel spread throughout Jerusalem. Um, and, and, that it, and that the church was established. Jesus, was, Jesus had promised to build his church and he was building it in Jerusalem. Last week... Uh, we saw that there was one person in particular who actually gave his life uh, because of the way that he shared his faith, because of the way that he testified about the gospel to the religious leaders. And that man's name was Stephen. Very good. And did the stoning of Stephen squelch the growth of the church in Jerusalem? Did it put it to a stop? No. In fact, quite the opposite happened, right? What happened to the church after Stephen was stoned? It began to spread not only uh, in Jerusalem, but actually beyond Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria. So, so look back actually first at Acts chapter 8 and verse 1. Acts chapter 8 verse 1 is an adequate backdrop for what we're going to say tonight. It starts with this phrase that a man named Saul approved of Stephen's execution. Saul approved of his execution. He would have been in that meeting where Stephen was giving his uh, testimony, but also giving the history of God's people, and Saul thought, along with the rest of them, Stephen needs to be executed, and he was, and so then, Acts 8.1 says that there arose on that day a great persecution against the whole church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So the apostles stayed in Jerusalem, bless you, and then the rest of the church, though, was scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, just like they were, just like Jesus had said that they would. Now, as the church is scattered, of course, the persecution uh, scattered as well, right? The religious rulers who were in Jerusalem didn't just try to harm the church in Jerusalem. They tried to follow these disciples wherever they went. And as the disciples spread and as the persecution spread, there, are, there were, or there are, as we'll see tonight, three very unlikely works of God that set the stage for the gospel to go, not just to that region, but all over the world, to all the nations. Jesus had said back in Acts 1, You'll be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. So, what three unlikely things happened to set the stage for that to happen? So, in your notes, you've got a few blanks. We will fill them in and give some detail and then break into small groups to talk about these. The first unlikely thing that we see is that there was one unlikely missionary. There was one unlikely missionary going to uh, hopefully quickly talk about the conversion of this man named Saul. When we see Saul's name in Acts 9.1, it's the first time his name has showed up since Acts 8.1, where he approved of Stephen's execution. In Acts 9.1, we read that Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. So he, he was all the more earnestly pursuing these disciples, arresting them, 
threatening them with murder. He even, it says, went to the high priest to ask for permission to go to the synagogues at Damascus. So Damascus was north of Jerusalem. They would travel, again, not just in Jerusalem, but they would travel to these other regions, to Judea and Samaria. Um, And Damascus was north, and so Saul knew that some of the believers were going north into Damascus. He asked for permission to go to Damascus. The reason is given there at the end of verse 2. So that if he found any belonging to the way, if you have an ESV, you'll notice that's capitalized, belonging to the way. That was kind of a proper noun for what we would call Christianity to that day. Those belonging to the way. It's not surprising then that Jesus said, I am the the way, right? So you see the connection here, why they would have gotten that name. If he found any belonging to the way, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Verse 3 says, now that he went on his way... Probably an intentional play on words, right? He's on his way, but he's about to go the way. Verse 3, He approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting? Now you would expect this voice to ask, Why are you persecuting my people, my disciples? That's not what the voice says. What does the voice say? Why are you persecuting me? Isn't that fascinating that this voice from heaven, which we know to be Jesus, Jesus identifies himself so closely with his disciples that to harm one of the disciples of Jesus is to harm Jesus himself. So why are you persecuting me? Verse 5, he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. You're persecuting me. But rise and enter the city. So go into Damascus, and you will be told what you are to do there. Verse 8, Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So we have, we have Saul in Damascus. This is where he wanted to go, but he can't see. All right, He's been blinded. He has met the one uh, who he has ultimately opposed. And and here we have, again, this this guy being, being, as far as as the believers might think, um, if we had asked that question that we asked at the beginning, who, who in your minds is the most unlikely person to come to Christ, many of the disciples in that day might have said, the guy from Tarsus, Saul, he's murdering us. He's putting us in prison. He is so opposed to what we're doing that how would he ever come to Christ? And yet, here is Jesus himself knocking Saul to the ground, telling him to go into Damascus. Uh, You read next that that there was a a disciple in Damascus, Ananias. The Lord then uh, speaks to Ananias and says, I want you to go uh, I've got a, a man there named Saul. And Ananias immediately hears that name, and what does he think? Yeah, like, ah, I don't think I want to go see him. Like, probably, probably not. Uh, verse 13, Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem, and how he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. So... Somewhat humorous here, Ananias is like, Lord, do you know who you're talking about? In verse 15, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine 
to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. That's a, that's a pretty astounding statement. Jesus says of, of Saul, he is a chosen instrument of mine. So when we think of people that, that we might suspect that God would normally choose to, to do a great work for him, we think of the people who have no criminal background, uh, people who have good standing before God, people who are uh, productive for the cause of Christ, not opposed to it, not antagonistic towards it. So we might think, and Ananias might think, why did you not choose Peter or John or Philip? Why did you choose Saul? Based on what we know about the rest of the New Testament, I think Saul was a pretty good choice. God knew what he was doing. So Ananias goes into the house, lays hands on him. Paul is, Saul is filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 18 says he rose, he was baptized. And then look at verse um, 20. And immediately he did what? What did Saul immediately begin to do? He proclaimed Jesus. He didn't wait. He didn't say, well, I better go take some classes. I better, better sit in on some Bible studies, right? Saul knew his Bible. Saul sat at the, uh, under the teaching of Gamaliel, who we read about in, in Acts 5. Saul knew the Scriptures. He, he, in fact, if you read some of his letters later, Saul thought he was being obedient to God by persecuting these disciples, and he was actually opposing God. Now that he knows the truth, and, and many of you know my friend um, uh, Jeremy Matthias, we were having a conversation about this one time, and Jeremy said, if I could be like in somebody's head at any point in history, he said, I would want to be in the head of Saul the three days that he was blind because he didn't eat, he didn't sleep, he didn't drink, he couldn't see, he had nothing else to do but spend three whole days contemplating how everything that he thought he knew to be true was now changed and was now different and how all the scriptures that he had memorized, he now was interpreting differently and was probably thinking to himself, oh, that's what that means now. Oh, that's what that means now. Like over and over and over again, having these realizations that I had it wrong all along, and if this is the truth, then this is what I need to proclaim now. And so that's why immediately he went and proclaimed Jesus. And, and of course, people recognized him. So verse 21, everyone who heard him was amazed. Is this not the man who wrecked havoc in Jerusalem? Um, look at verse 26. He left Damascus. He actually had to escape from Damascus because the authorities there realized, hey, he's not on our side anymore. So they sought to kill him. So he escaped from Damascus to Jerusalem in verse 26. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. What I want us to try to apply from this is to realize that there is no one, there is no one in the world who is outside the possibility of God saving them. Okay? If, if there was ever anybody who would be outside of the possibility of God saving them, it would be me. I would not be saved. God saved me. 
God saved all of us, and it's a miracle that He saves any of us. And He turned Saul into a missionary to not just be saved, but to spread the good news of salvation. So, one unlikely missionary. Number two, two unlikely signs. So that's kind of a um, uh, repetitive, um, unnecessary repetition, right? If they're signs, they're probably unlikely. Miracles are, are unlikely. That's what makes them miraculous. But they're unlikely nonetheless, and they're signs nonetheless. So we'll go with it. Verse 32. Now is Peter, and this is actually kind of uh, interesting, I think. We spent 31 verses now looking at Saul, and we're just now we just like we flash back to what Peter is doing. Now as Peter, verse 32, went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him. And they turned to the Lord. We've talked about this, I think it was a couple weeks ago. The reason that the apostles were able to do these miracles, yes, is because Jesus gave them this power. But why did Jesus give them this power? What was the greatest miracle ever performed in the history of the world? What is it? Yeah, Jesus came back from the dead. People who die coming back to life. So the point of these miracles is to show if God can raise the dead, then God can also give the power to His people to raise the paralyzed. So you get to verse 36 and you read that in Joppa there was a disciple named Tabitha. Uh, Verse 37, In those days she became ill and died. When they washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men urging him, Please come to us without delay. Uh, so Peter, Peter rose, went with them. He arrived. He went to the upper room. People are weeping because she's died. Verse 40, Peter put them all outside, knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. He gave her his hand and raised her up. And calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days. Stayed in Joppa for many days. So, the point of these signs is to show that if God can raise the dead, God can also raise the sick and raise others from the dead. And if God can raise the dead, God can do what he did for Saul. He can save people from their sins. Last thing, number three. Many unlikely believers. Many unlikely believers. Go back to uh, chapter 9 and verse 15 real quickly. The Lord said to Ananias about Saul, Go ahead and go to Saul, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the... What's the name? What's the word? Gentiles. All right. What, do, what does the Bible, who does the Bible talking about uh, when it speaks about Gentiles? Do we know? Okay, very good. Yeah, so, so that was a way to talk about any nationality, any ethnic group who was not Jewish. So, so this was the, the Israelites' way of identifying those who aren't like them. So the, the Gentile people, whenever we say the Gentile people... The Gentiles, it's not one specific nation, it's actually all nations who are not Jewish. And it was significant that Saul was going to be the apostle 
to the Gentiles because really all the work up to this point in Acts and really through most of Jesus' ministry was, was to Jewish people. There were some exceptions. So if you were here Sunday, we even talked in the main service about a, a Gentile man, a Roman soldier who came to Christ. But that was the exception. That was not the rule. For the most part, uh, Jesus and the disciples mainly did ministry to Jewish people, not to non-Jewish people. But now, the gospel had to go to the ends of the earth, and most of the people around the world were not Jewish. That's true today, right? Most people in the world are not Jewish. They're Gentiles. They're of other nations. And so, it would seem for these apostles very unlikely that any Gentiles would come to Christ. And so, so Jesus had said that Saul especially would be a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before Gentiles, before the other nations. So, how this plays out is really very fascinating. We'll try to go through it quickly. Chapter 10, verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion, so a Roman soldier, a Gentile man, uh, of what was known as the Italian cohort. This guy, though, verse 2, was a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, prayed continually to God. So this is a, this is a God-fearing man. This is a man who... Uh, to, the, to the extent of whatever knowledge he had, he believed in the God of the Jews. Uh, verse, verse 3 says that about the ninth hour of the day, so the probably middle of the afternoon, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa. Bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He's lodging there uh, with Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. So, this is, this, is how, um, this is how God is at work in Cornelius' life. Cornelius knows enough about God to believe that he's the one true God, but he doesn't know enough to follow Jesus. He hasn't made that connection yet. So God is going to make a way for Cornelius to hear about Jesus. Well, who better to hear about Jesus except from one who has spent his adult life with Jesus. So, send for Peter. And, and so these men go to get Peter. At the same time, Peter is also receiving a vision. Verse 9, The next day as they were on their journey approaching the city, Peter went up to the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. He became hungry, wanted something to eat. While they were preparing it, he fell into a trance, saw the heavens open to something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals, reptiles, birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter said, By no means, Lord, I've never eaten anything that's unclean or common. And the voice came again a second time. If God has made it clean, do not call it common. And this happened three times, and the thing was taken up to heaven. So here's God saying to Peter, go ahead, eat all these animals that, that you know as a Jew are not right. And God's making the point very simply. If I say it's clean, it's not unclean. That would be a big deal for, for a Jew to eat food that he previously was not allowed to eat. Peter's confused. He doesn't understand what this means. Well, then, about, as he's wondering about this, uh, these visitors from Cornelius show up. They say, come with us. Peter doesn't know why, but he goes with them. The next day, he rose, went with them. Um, they actually bow down to Peter when he shows up. He's like, I'm just a man. Stand up. So he stands up. 
Look at verse 28. Peter's in front of these guys, and Peter says to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I ask then why you sent me. Why am I here? All I know is that I've received this vision and that I'm not supposed to think you guys are unclean anymore. So what do you want? Cornelius then tells him about the vision he had. And look at what Peter is able to say. Verse 34. Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. And as for the word that He sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, the Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with Him, and we are witnesses of all that He did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And they put Him to death by hanging Him on a tree, but God raised Him on the third day and made Him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with Him after He rose from the dead. Verse 42, And He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that He is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To Him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins through His name. And then that chapter concludes uh, with, with those uh, people, the family of Cornelius and, and everyone else who was in his house, uh, receiving the Holy Spirit and being baptized. And, and they were the first known uh, Gentiles to, to have either of those things happen to, to them. They were, uh, in, in the eyes of the Jews, they were the unlikeliest of people to believe in Jesus. And so, so I ask again, who is it in your life who you think would be the most unlikely person to come to Christ? It might be that if we will pray for those people... Uh, if we will will do what Peter did and show them that it's not enough just to believe in God generically, you must know Jesus. So here is Jesus. Tell them what He is like, who He is, what He has done for them, that God might see fit to save some of those people and use them to join you in the work of sharing Christ with others. So, I want to pray towards that end one more time before we break into small groups. Would you pray with me? Father, we are humbled that you would save sinners like us. We are stunned that you would look with favor and kindness and grace and mercy upon any of us. And if you can save us, you can save anyone. Thank you, Lord, that you chose Saul to be your instrument and apostle to Gentiles to make Christ known to them. Thank you that Peter obeyed and understood that we have access now to all peoples and they need Christ too. 
So I pray that we will show Christ to them. Help us as we talk about these things in groups to see how you might help us to apply these truths for ourselves. Lord, maybe in this room somebody thought to themselves, I am unlikely to be saved. God, would you change their mind and draw them to yourself. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.